Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna Minnick. Welcome to the Color Can Heal Your Life podcast, where we explore how you can get some more color, creativity, and healing in your everyday life. We get to look at the spectrum of eating, living, feeling, and creating that you're all about. So let's dive into the inspiration and information rainbow that awaits us. Everybody, welcome to the next episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. Glad to have you here with us. So, in this episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Ellen Gaby, and uh, you know there are very few people that I truly follow doing nutrition anymore. There are very few books that I read. There are very few papers that I decide to invest my time in reading because I look at affiliations, I look at different sponsorships. But, you know, there are a couple of true blue people who, who really toe the line of authenticity and truth in nutrition, and I value them greatly. Dr. Alan Gaby is one of those people. In fact, his favorite color, you'll find out, is blue. <laughs> he really is true blue. And so uh, in this interview that I'm doing with him, I, I wish I could have just talked with him for hours. He is so much along the same wavelength that I really speak from, which is trying to look at everything in a very balanced way rather than having huge emotional tugs at certain things in nutrition. And I know that we tend to get pretty emotional about certain things in nutrition. It's very close to us. However, I like to really look at the greater whole, the greater context. And one of the things that he was talking about in this interview was how it's not, uh, you know, we've got to see the whole. We've got to focus on the whole. So anyway, I think you're going to find that this is a rather head-turning interview. He's not a guy that subscribes to dogma. He's a guy that thinks for himself, truly the kind of people that, uh, that, that I like to commune with. And so here we go, diving into the interview with Dr. Alan Gaby. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Deanna. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Color Can Heal Your Life. And in this episode, I have Dr. Alan Gaby to talk with us about the hot topics in nutrition. So welcome, Dr. Gaby. Thank you. Nice to be here. Glad to have you. In fact, um, I have to tell you that on my desk right now, and I don't have many books on my desk, but I have your your nutritional medicine book, which is... Um, <laughs> just an amazing book for all people in nutrition and even those that are just really interested in their health. So I've always been following your work and really admired the, the amazing research and everything that you've put into um, the nutritional medicine book. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been my life path. I've worked on that for 36 years and it covers everything I've ever learned about nutritional therapy. And it shows. <laughs> it shows. It, it's thick. It's uh, informative. It's well thought out. It's it's just amazing. So on a separate topic, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody that I have on the show, and that is, what is your favorite color? <laughs> well, my favorite color is blue. I don't know why. It just makes me feel good. And my clothing sometimes is blue, and I feel good in that. Uh, but it's interesting that blue is the toxic portion of the sun's rays that uh, that cause age-related macular degeneration and the human body has developed a method of blocking the blue light on the spectrum by taking carotenoids and putting them in the macula so lutein and zeaxanthin 
or the body's natural protection against the toxic blue light. But for me, blue light is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I've never had anybody give rationale for why they like this color and why it may not be such a good thing, but uh, that's very insightful. So, you know, I connect blue to the intellect. So for me, it really does make sense that you would like that color, and your book is that color as well, and so everything is really vibing to, to blue, so that's wonderful. Well, that's yeah. interesting, and as well, you know, the concept of feeling blue, which is also negative, right. but I'm not going to go there either. <laughs> No, uh, we, we don't need to. But, you know, blue-enriched white light, you know, there are some studies actually showing that um, there are some cognitive effects. You know, I wrote about that in one of my books, looking at the science of all these different colors and what they do to our physiology and our psychology. So blue's not all, quote-unquote, bad. You know, I think <laughs> that, um, you know, we, we can tune in at, at strategic times. So on that note, um, you know, the, the reason why I decided to, uh, to reach out to you is because I was listening to a webinar with you not too long ago and really in awe of the breadth of your knowledge. And before we dive in, because I know that it's going to be a deep well of lots of discovery, I first want to ask you a personal question of, you know, how did you as a medical doctor get into nutrition because that's not a very commonly traveled path so i'd like to know more about that yeah well for me it was different i discovered uh, the importance of nutrition before i went to medical school and uh, i decided uh, that my life work would be to uh, learn everything i could about this field and then to teach others what i learned and so on that path i figured i needed to go to medical school and become a doctor to discover which ones of the treatments out there that were being claimed to be effective actually were. So um, I did medical practice and on the side I just went for, for decades uh, through tens of thousands of research papers and to try to analyze them and categorize them and see how they fit. Uh, I went to medical school in the 1970s and uh, I was a weirdo back then. Uh, I almost got in a little trouble sometimes for, for what I said when I raised my hand and they, they were always afraid to call on me because I would bring stuff up that they had never heard of. Uh, but fortunately things are a lot better today. Uh, there's still a lot of controversy in the field, but there's so many people doing what we call either integrative or functional or nutritional or holistic medicine that there's a camaraderie now we can, we can uh, work with people in the, in the same field and it's still controversial and my my life work is not complete because I think I need to continue summarizing this research so that the skeptics can become more open-minded. Yes, absolutely. So there was nothing that personally tugged at you health-wise that led you into nutrition. It was just more or less you were very expansive in your mindset and how you were thinking about health. Well, uh, my family is a medical family and they had urged me to go to medical school and the model did not appeal to me. I didn't like the idea of drugs and surgery. Uh, I read books by Roger Williams and Carlton Fredericks and some other notables back in the 70s. And one day I just had an epiphany. Uh, Einstein might have said epiphanies are God's way of remaining anonymous. But this uh, thing just came into me instantly and it said, you're gonna teach nutrition to the world. You're gonna learn about it. And all of a sudden I went from aimless to having a purpose in my life and that was 45 years ago and I've stuck right with it uh, the whole time. 
Oh, that's so inspirational. Well, again, you have taught many people through your writing, through your research, and, and everything combined. So thank you again. You know, one of the things that really drew me into your webinar and got my ears perked was when you started talking about folic acid. You know, in, uh, in functional medicine, <clears throat> in that circle of which I'm a part of, you know, there's such a... Um, goodness a rallying around methylation and all this talk about methylation and it's almost like I remember what Jeff Bland had said years ago that if you have a hammer everything starts to look like a nail <laughs> that's right and so there is this love that people have put their arms around with methylation and so I'm just kind of curious because one of the things that is talked about with methylation and helping people with inefficiencies with certain enzymes related to methylation is the use of folate in the diet and then folic acid supplementally but there's kind of this rift between folic acid and 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate and I'm wondering if you could illuminate for us you know we have a pretty sophisticated audience so you don't have to go into too much of the biochemistry but okay. to really give us kind of high level of the science <clears throat> what and even your clinical uh, eye on you know what's best for methylation what do we need to be looking at Okay, well, first of all, um, I've read and heard multiple times that methylation is important, and yes, uh, it is, but uh, no one ever really goes beyond that to provide uh, documented evidence on what we should actually do with that fact that methylation is important. It does not automatically follow that if methylation is important that we need to use methylated supplements uh, for prevention and treatment. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so in the, uh, the area of folic acid, folic acid is not itself biologically active. It has to be converted either to 5-MTHF or to one other related compound in order to have biological activity in the body. Uh, however, that does not automatically mean that the methylated form is desirable. Uh, virtually all of the research done with uh, folates has used synthetic folic acid. It's been shown to prevent neural tube defects, to reduce the risk of stroke by 8 to 15 percent approximately. There is a subset of people with chronic migraines where folic acid has prevented migraine recurrences. It's been used in uh, fairly high doses. There's probably a genetic factor here for the treatment of familial restless legs syndrome. Uh, very high doses are needed there. Uh, it's also been used for gingivitis and for a couple other uh, common conditions. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, the assumption is that since the 5-MTHF is biologically active, that it will work better. There are a couple different concerns that people have voiced regarding uh, folic acid. One of those is that when you take a large amount of folic acid, there is an, some unmetabolized folic acid is present in the body. And while that's true, the clinical implications of that are far from clear. It might be good to have unmetabolized folic acid. It might be bad. It might be neutral. We just don't know. So the mere fact that that occurs is not a reason to automatically move to a different supplement that's been hardly studied at all. Another uh, significant concern is that there's a subset of the population, about 5 to 15 percent of the population that is homozygous for a specific polymorphism that uh, most of your listeners have probably, probably heard of, the MTHFR gene, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. So 5 to 15 percent of the population may have difficulty converting folic acid to its biologically active form. 
However, that in itself is not sufficient reason to recommend MTH, uh, 5-MTHF either because the polymorphism that we're talking about uh, creates a very modest problem in the body that can easily be overcome in most cases simply by doubling the folic acid intake, and we're still under one milligram per day here. There's a small proportion of people that need more than that, such as two to five milligrams a day. But what this polymorphism creates is a higher than normal folate requirement. Whether or not it dictates the need for MTHF rather than folic acid is far from clear. There's been very little research comparing the two, but the research that has been done does not in any way suggest that 5-MTHF is preferable. Uh, the most dramatic study was published four or five years ago, and they compared the homocysteine-lowering effect of folic acid and 5-MTHF. They were about the same. Uh, actually, folic acid was slightly better, but it was not statistically significant. But then when they looked at the subset of people, the 27% 20, the of the population that was homozygous for the C to T polymorphism of MTHFR, that's the one that uh, functional medicine people are predicting requires the use of 5-MTHF. What they actually found was that folic acid was substantially more effective for lowering homocysteine than 5-MTHF was. Um, in addition, Although there have not been comparative studies in the treatment of depression, the research on using 5-MTHF when given as an adjunct to antidepressant medications shows that 15 milligrams a day of 5-MTHF is effective, whereas 7.5 milligrams per day is not. In contrast, when they use folic acid as an adjunct to antidepressants, anywhere from 0.5 to 5.0 milligrams per day is effective. So uh, that seems to suggest that folic acid is more potent as an adjunct to antidepressant treatment than 5-MTHF is. Uh, my final concern, uh, other than the fact that almost all of the positive studies have used folic acid, is that there may be a stability issue with 5-MTHF. Um, it is clearly less stable than folic acid. And the question becomes, what happens when you put it in a multiple vitamin with dozens of different nutrients? We know, as an example, that vitamin B12 can be degraded into analogs when you mix it with two or three different nutrients that are commonly present in a multiple. Whether 5-MTHF is also degraded, we don't know. But my bet goes with the more stable form when you're using it in a multi. Now, does that mean we should never use 5-MTHF? No, it does not mean that at all. And I'm aware of uh, clinical reports. I'm not practicing now, so I don't have uh, any personal experience comparing the two. But I, I keep in touch with a lot of practitioners. And every once in a while, somebody finds a patient who responds better to 5-MTHF than to folic acid. Uh, with that said, I think routinely uh, we should not use that. I think it should be selected situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just took a, a number of notes on what you just said there. And, you know, when I was looking into the literature, I also had found that there's a plethora of research on folic acid. Yet, if you look in the functional medicine community, those words to even say folic acid is considered like blasphemy. It's kind of like, how dare you talk about folic acid? We are, <laughs> you know, we're, we're just focused on 5-methyl. So I'm glad that you brought out for us some of the issues to consider 
And at the end, what you just said there about personalization, at the end of the day, everybody responds a little bit differently. But for formulation, manufacturing, dosage, those types of things that you just addressed, I think are really uh, worthwhile. So yeah, well, thank you. If I could respond to your statement, the, the how dare you and the blasphemy, um, those are <laughs> emotional and religious responses. And yes. uh, while there's certain value in emotionalism and religion, uh, we're looking here at evidence, and as a scientist who comes in from Mars with a blank slate, I want to see the evidence that something is better, and I don't want to make extrapolations from what we think is true, because there are so many biochemical pathways from which people have uh, inferred clinical importance that turned out to be wrong, that we need to be very careful uh, on making assumptions. Thank you. I, I absolutely agree. So. Um Thanks for, it's almost like reverting back to the 1970s, right? Where, where <laughs> sometimes the, the fingers get pointed at you, but uh, in, the, in the long run, when we move away and kind of look at the larger context and weigh the evidence, we can see that there are certain patterns that we can't refute. So anyway, thank you so much because that's such a, a hot item. Another hot item within nutrition is that of allergy. Uh, looking at, well, it's actually not even just food allergy or environmental allergies. We're <coughs> looking at food intolerances, sensitivities. You know, there's just, just this big ball of lots of discussion about immune response to food. And so, wax on this for us a little bit. You know, what have you found based on the literature as it relates to food allergy, environmental allergies, uh, food intolerances, food sensitivities? Do we need to do testing? Does testing really tell us anything? Or I remember you saying that the elimination diet and then reintroductions, and that's how I was trained and that's what I do, that that is probably one of the, the best ways to do it. But just give us your um, scientific view into this whole realm of immune response. And sure. Um, well, there's still a lot that's unknown. Uh, in my, my process of trying to learn about this field, I looked through the table of contents of all the major medical journals all the way back to 1900. It was amazing how many people back in the 1920s were talking about food allergy. And uh, let me just be clear that we're not talking about the uh, standard IgG, excuse me, IgE-mediated acute hypersensitivity reaction, the, uh, the anaphylaxis, the uh, severe eczema or asthmatic response. We're talking about something different, uh, and we're not entirely sure what the mechanism is either, but it's been commonly called hidden or masked food allergy. People are generally unaware that they're sensitive to these foods. Uh, you have to unmask the allergy by going on an elimination diet and that reverts the body to a hypersensitive state. And then when you test one food back at a time, you get exaggerated and acute responses. So elimination and rechallenge can uh, allow you to diagnose these hidden allergies. Now, what uh, conditions are commonly caused by hidden allergy? Um, irritable bowel syndrome is a common one. And I'll, I'll use the term allergy loosely here because in some cases, it is apparently an immune-mediated response because you get systemic responses at the same time. You might get joint pain, you might get migraines, you might get fatigue, in addition to GI reactions. In other cases, food-induced gastrointestinal symptoms is due to non-allergy-mediated reactions to various carbohydrates, 
in the in the diet, such as lactose or fructose or inulin or fructooligosaccharides. Uh, the the group as a whole has been given the acronym FODMAPs, which uh, probably your listeners have heard of. So here we have both allergy-mediated and non-allergy-mediated reactions. Other systems, migraine headaches, asthma, some types of arthritis, uh, various types of skin conditions uh, are frequently caused or exacerbated by hidden food allergy. Now, as I said, this was described back in the 1920s. When I started my practice in 1981, I found it to be very common uh, cause of poorly diagnosed and poorly treated conditions, and it became a component of my investigation and therapy throughout my 20 years of practice. Uh, I would estimate that I put about 2,000 people through an elimination and rechallenge diet. Um, most of them did the diet. It's, it's a difficult diet, but it was a selected sample of people because they knew what they were getting into before they walked into my door. Uh, so it was a very high compliance rate. And probably uh, three quarters to 80% of the people uh, had some type of chronic problem that was not being adequately treated by conventional medicine, where they had substantial response or complete elimination so, of, the, of the symptoms. So uh, what I do is I do a history. Um, there are certain predictors that someone has hidden food allergy. For example, did you have recurrent ear infections as a kid? Did you have bedwetting past the age when you're supposed to? Did you have uh, chronic nasal congestion, etc.? And then I go down the list of various symptoms that could be caused by food allergy. And you kind of get a composite there. This person is much more likely to be allergic than this person. You look at physical signs. People have dark circles under the eyes, a tendency to puffiness under the eyes. Kids, uh, they have uh, what's called the allergic crease in their nose. It's a, uh, it's a little horizontal crease. Um, anyway, uh, so after you've done all that history, you teach someone to do an elimination and rechallenge, and uh, it takes two to three weeks for the symptoms to resolve, and then they can provoke the symptoms with uh, various individual challenges that they're sensitive to. Regarding whether um, laboratory testing is useful, uh, I've looked at this carefully. I'm not convinced that it is particularly useful. There's a high incidence of false positives and false negatives with uh, most of the tests that are being used. Is that to say that they shouldn't be used or that they're useless? I wouldn't say that because many practitioners tell me that they put the patients through the laboratory testing, usually IgG RAST, and their patients get better. Well, that's fine if the patients are willing to pay the money and uh, they're willing to, to do that approach, that's okay. But what I find is that a lot of times they end up eliminating foods that they don't have to eliminate and in many cases also, if they rely only on the lab test, there are some major allergens that they were told that they could eat, which are actually causing their symptoms. So that's why I prefer the elimination rechallenge. People can actually see themselves get better and see themselves get worse. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Wow. Lots of information there. So, you know, I... Everything that you just said, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to make it actionable and just kind of coalesce it into like a concept for everybody to digest. And I'm wondering if you also come from the same school of thought where most practitioners believe that so much starts in the gut, that uh, if we can work on healing the gut, that we can help with everything that you just described, that 
we can help in the uh, digestion, the assimilation of foods, preventing an, an immune inflammatory response. So I'm wondering, number one, do you also come from this general mindset that so many different chronic conditions begin in the gut? And if you do subscribe to that school of thought, what are some of the principles that you would want to showcase to everybody listening around gut healing? Like how do we actually get in there and heal rather than just continue to avoid foods for the rest of our lives? Okay. Well, um, empirically we have seen that when people avoid offending foods for a period of time, sometimes three months, sometimes six or 12 months, that the allergies gradually settle down and then you can reintroduce that food uh, on a rotating basis, maybe no more than once every three or four days, and then you will no longer provoke the symptoms and get sick from that food. Uh, Exactly which portion of the body is involved there is not clear. I certainly uh, believe that promoting digestion and assimilation is crucial. Uh, If you don't have enough hydrochloric acid or if your pancreatic enzyme secretion is not sufficient, then supplementing with the appropriate digestive aid will help you absorb the nutrients and will also help you break down the allergenic foods into smaller sizes so that they're no longer allergenic. Um, There's also no question that some people have undesirable intestinal flora, uh, also increased intestinal permeability. However, to say that things originate in the gut, to me, is kind of like just picking your favorite organ and focusing on that. Other people say, you know, the adrenals are messed up. You got to work on the adrenals. Other people say, well, your liver is congested. So I like to look at the body as a whole and not necessarily focus on one particular organ. Um, So I would say, no, I don't agree with the concept that everything begins in the gut or the gut is necessarily even the most important aspect of it. It's something we have to be aware of. You look for GI symptoms, it makes you uh, concerned more about intestinal problems. You, You consider the possibility that probiotics are necessary. The only thing that I have seen that clearly reduces intestinal permeability is avoiding allergenic foods, which is what I would do anyway without ever using the word gut necessarily. Um, There are various supplements that have been used, for example, glutamine. Glutamine is a non-essential amino acid, and it is the preferred fuel for the small intestine. And based on that concept, people have assumed that if you supplement with glutamine, you will improve intestinal permeability. Uh, That's not necessarily true, and the research that's been done in Crohn's disease shows two things. Number one, uh, intestinal permeability actually gets slightly worse when you give uh, glutamine, and also the clinical uh, status has a tendency to get worse as well. So again, we cannot automatically jump from biochemistry to what we think is appropriate clinically. Why would that be with glutamine when it is clearly the important fuel for the gut? Glutamine also stimulates various aspects of immune function. And as you know, when you're dealing with autoimmune disease, you've got both the suppressor function, which reduces autoimmune reactivity, and the old term, the helper function. I don't think they use that anymore, but that's the way I learned it, that stimulates immune activity. So apparently uh, the glutamine uh, dominates more with one than the other. So back to to your original question, yes, I do use probiotics. Uh, I do uh, try to get people to avoid foods that are causing problems that are affecting their gut. 
and I do uh, look into digestion and use appropriate supplements. Probably one of the most important things that we tend to overlook is chewing our food. It's crucial. <laughs> I have seen so many people yeah. go to a gastroenterologist and get worked up for GI symptoms, and they eat their food like in eight minutes or eight seconds, and I tell them to chew 40 times, and their GI symptoms get a lot better. So we, we can't forget the basics of what creates gut health. There was a, a case report back in around 1903 where this guy got acute hives every time he ate rapidly. And if he chewed his food, he did not get hives. It did not matter what he ate. So I use that as an example sometimes. Oh, that's so great. And, you know, just even the concept of chewing and occluding the teeth links to cognition, right? You know, there are some studies on that, too, showing that proper occlusion and having that stimulation at the place of the root fibers in the teeth can be important for signaling the brain. So I think. Oh, I hadn't heard that one. I'd, I'd be interested in seeing the studies on that. Yeah, we actually wrote a blog on it. I will uh, send it on to you, and Thank you, you can see all the the cephalic response of, of um, mastication. It's it's. <laughs> and I didn't even realize that until I was uh, co-teaching with somebody uh, for a functional medicine course, Mary Ellen Chalmers, and she's a dentist, and she began talking about that. So. Oh, that's great. Where there's an old quote from about 150 years ago: "Nature castigates those who don't masticate." Oh my, <laughs> that, that sounds a little religious there, very, uh, <laughs> very dogmatic, wow. Um, well, these, this is great, you know, these are three big areas within uh, health, healing, nutrition, talking about folic acid, talking about allergy, talking about the gut, and I really, I just want to comment quickly that I like what you said about how you don't pigeonhole everything into the gut either, we do have to look at the body as a whole, and I think even though we, um, play in this larger sandbox of integrative health and medicine and functional medicine, I think what tends to happen is we do tend to fall back to things that are comfortable and singular. Uh, so yeah, you're right. You know, we have to zoom out and look at the whole. Well, that's true. And, and what I learned from psychoneuroimmunology is that it's really hard to define what the gut is, what the brain is, what the nervous system is. Um, the skin, for example, produces a hypothalamic hormone. I was blown away when I read about that five or six years ago. Corticotropin-releasing hormone is produced in the skin uh, in response to ultraviolet light. So is the skin part of the brain, since it's also produced in the hypothalamus? The, the, the uh, gut produces serotonin. Uh, which is, you know, supposed to be the antidepressant. And even though it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, it's being made there. And we have all this evidence that different organs in the body talk to each other with chemical messengers. So that's why I think it's quite important to look at the, the whole person and try not to, as you say, pigeonhole uh, into individual organs. Yes. And, uh, you know, I have often thought about that as well with PNI, psychoneuroimmunology. You know, where is the brain? Where is consciousness? Is it really up in the head or is it throughout every cell? So, oh gosh, I just, I really love your orientation into, um, into medicine and health and healing. It's, it's so in alignment with what I, uh, what I also feel and, and just intuit. Um, you know, in our remaining minutes here, uh, and you've been generous to really go through everything, you know, are, are there certain things that you feel like are on the horizon of nutrition that you're already starting to see percolate up? You know, Jeff Bland might call this the, the leading edge 
versus the bleeding edge? You know, what, what are you trying? What are you seeing? Because I know that you're always on the pulse of looking at research. And so, are there certain things that people haven't even begun to notice? You know, I'm seeing people talk about photons, light in different ways that have not been discussed before. You know, are there things with nutrition that we need to be aware of? Well, there may be. Um, however, um, there is so much that we have learned in the past 100, 120 years that is being completely ignored uh, in conventional medicine that my focus has always been to try to bring that stuff, the stuff that works so well in clinical practice that is well documented. And you know, sometimes it's not even that well documented. It's case reports or it's uncontrolled trials, but it works in clinical practice. So my focus has been on trying to bring that into the mainstream. Uh, there are probably some things out there that are on the, the cutting edge. I, you know, I try to keep up. I, I actually spend probably 30 hours a month just looking through the table of contents of every journal I can find. And I find interesting things, but, but I can't really comment on what is the, the most exciting thing. What I can say is that there are tens of thousands of uh, research reports out there. And that's what I did in my, in my textbook to um, try to uh, bring all this information to people if they come with an open mind that they will see that the research is there and that they can incorporate this into their clinical practice and that they will get much better results than before. And that, that's what I've heard. People who, who get my book uh, frequently email me and say, thank you, I never knew any of this stuff existed. I didn't learn it in medical school. I'm amazed that it's in my own specialty journal and I never even heard of it. And I'm trying this stuff and it's just so gratifying to be getting results. So that's, that's where I'm focusing, not so much what the most important cutting edge thing is, but what's out there that needs to be in the mainstream. Super. And to that end, would love to uh, tell people how they can find you and find your book. Because again, um, it's, it's what I believe all people that are involved with nutrition should have access to. We really do need this information. It's such a great compendium. So why don't you tell us more about how we can get in touch with you, how we can know more about nutritional medicine, your book. Sure. Okay, thank you. So so my website is drgaby.com. It's spelled D-O-C-T-O-R-G-A-B-Y.com. Um, and my email address is up there. Uh, there are some sample chapters of my textbook listed so people can get an idea whether it looks like it's right for them. It's got over 16,000 references. It's got 342 chapters, and it discusses uh, over 400 conditions uh, and how to treat them or prevent them with nutrition. It also has introductory chapters that discuss the concepts of, for example, hypoglycemia, uh, sub-laboratory hypothyroidism, hidden food allergy, how to cook your foods in the safest way, etc. Then it goes through 61 chapters on individual nutrients, uh, what they're used for, uh, what the adverse effects are, dosage recommendations, interactions with drugs, etc. And then the remainder of it is uh, by specialty, cardiovascular conditions, neurologic, etc. So drgaby.com is where you can both find my contact information and uh, look at, at the work. It's now in its second edition. Uh, the first edition was published in 2011 and the second was published in 2017. So I'm going to toss my two cents in uh, for future developments. If your son or you uh, ever want to look into furthering uh, the material, it'd be great to have this as an app. 
<laughs> have, have what as an app? Well, all of the nutritional information. If there was a way to have um, the information that you have in the textbook and then to be able to look up iron and then to have... Oh, like you the can, actually. It, it, it was converted to an e-book. So you can do a, a search on any, any word in the book or you can click on anything in the index and it just takes you right there. But you have to get the e-book version to do that. Perfect, perfect. Great. Very nice. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to go through this. Um, and I know that I could go down the rabbit hole even further with you, but uh, to honor your time and uh, to give people the opportunity to get to know you more through your book, um, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely stop here. And uh, again, big thanks to you, Dr. Gaby. Well, thank you. My pleasure.